Our script, our scripture passage today is Genesis chapter 33, uh, the whole thing. So 1 through 20. Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my, my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lean on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. on the board. All right. Try that again. I can get a little more slack on this. You can tell I'm the backup preacher this morning. And while we have a lot of marks in the congregation, I'm actually Vic, but uh, it's good to see you all this morning. David, appreciate you reading the word, brother. Um, we're back in Genesis this week, obviously, after um, the, the Christmas-themed messages of the past couple weeks. I'm really grateful for Mark uh, giving me the opportunity to preach twice within a month, because uh, these two passages, Genesis 32, where we left off, where uh, that, that epic wrestling match between Jacob and God uh, is a companion passage to the passage that we're in today. This is sort of the bookend. This is the resolution. I talked about the narrative arc, and this is the resolution that so much of what we've been reading for the past couple of months has been building up to. And, uh, and so it's exciting uh, to be here with you guys this morning. Um, as I was preparing for this, uh, something that, that hit me over the holidays was we, uh, we play a game of family feud. We actually played with the Southerns and extended family one night, and then when the kids got here, we didn't have our whole family together. Um, so uh, Sam and 
Debbie and Lydia weren't able to make it, but we did a Zoom call and got the whole family together and played Family Feud. And one of the questions uh, on that Family Feud, you know, the survey of 100 people, uh, we asked them, what is the most popular Christmas movie? Well, Wonderful Life, no surprise, number one, okay? Uh, but I was surprised to hear uh, not just the Christmas Carol, that didn't surprise me, but the Muppets Christmas Carol was on the list. And I hadn't watched that movie in years, and so that kind of led Beth and I, we watched it one night, and then when the kids came... I stayed up late, watched it again a second time, and it really is a good movie, and there's biblical references in there. It's a really well-done film. It'll touch your heart, but um, in the scene featuring the ghost of Christmas yet to come, um, oh, and I've got to turn this thing on, so let me do that, Jeff. Another rookie mistake here. So um, in the scene featuring ghost of Christmas yet to come, the Cratchit family is mourning the loss of Tiny Tim, right, as Scrooge looks on. And in an effort to control his, his, uh, his uh, family's grief, this guy, Bob Cratchit, a.k.a. Kermit the Frog, he says this. He says, uh, life is made up of meetings and partings. That is the way of it. I'm not sure. I am sure that we will never forget Tiny Tim or this first parting uh, that there is among us. It's not very spiritually deep, I know, but nonetheless true. And it reminded me of a couple of things. We're about to encounter Jacob and Esau finally meeting. And just as soon as they meet, they're going to part, Right? which, in a sense, when you read it, it's, it's kind of sad, right? Everything's been building up to this, and they meet one day, they depart the next day, and it's, uh, their lives go on. Um, but I'm grateful. It made me think, too, how grateful I am for this church. We've been here 22-plus years, and uh, we've walked with many of you that whole time. Uh, God has allowed the meeting to be a long meeting of 22 years in this church, and we have uh, our dearest friendships, our deepest friendships are with those of you uh, uh, in this church, but we've also said goodbye to a lot of people. We've had partings, and God in his sovereignty has not always deemed it to be his will that people walk with us forever, or as long as Antioch is a church, or as long as we live. Uh, and so, so a lot of people have moved on during that time. So meetings and partings sort of captured my attention as I thought about this passage this morning. Um, so I just want to uh, leave you with uh, the three points here of, of the sermon today, is that we will, oops, I just hit the wrong button again. There we go. Um, We're going to look at the meeting. We're going to look at the parting. And then for the third part of the sermon this morning, we're going to look at a disobedient detour in the life of Jacob and his family. But before we jump into the text, let's look briefly, just a little bit of background and kind of an introduction of where we've been, Um, specifically how sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau fits into the overall Genesis narrative and does fit in. So when I taught on Genesis 32 a few weeks ago, I quoted Griffith Thomas's quote that the order of nature is not necessarily uh, the order of grace. And he's talking about birth order there. The oldest son, uh, biblically, by tradition, would receive the father's blessing, was the chief inheritor of the estate. You know, there, was, there were certain rights associated with that. But very often in Genesis, um, we see that pattern turned upside down by God. Um, and it's not the old, eldest, it's one of the youngest or the youngest who actually receives that, that blessing. So it's, um, it's a pattern in Genesis, and very quickly, for those of you who are firstborns out there, don't panic. This is not a theological uh, principle. It's a pattern in Genesis, but, um, but firstborns, God loves you, and in Christ, there's no partiality, right? So this is a pattern for God's sovereign principles. He did this um, because he's God, and he had a purpose and a, and a plan, and I think he wanted to demonstrate his sovereignty over all aspects of of human life and existence. So sibling rivalry is a thing. 
Um, it's played out in Genesis over and over again. There are numerous examples showing how it led to conflict, how conflict led to sin, how sin led to consequences, sometimes very dire consequences. But there was always God's presence and his, uh, his intervention and his, uh, his, his mitigated grace that he bestows upon those, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of rivalry. So we saw this play out with Cain and Abel. Uh, uh, the anger and jealousy that erupted in the older brother's heart because God regarded Abel's offering. You all remember that? But he had no regard for the offering of Cain. And in a fit of rage, he rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And God sentenced Cain to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, yet he showed grace to him by sparing his life. God's grace flowed to Eve at the birth of Seth who would fulfill the promise that her offspring for telling of Jesus would crush the serpent's head. And again, at the birth of Seth's son Enosh, it says in the Bible that at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord again. Grace poured out even in grief, even in sorrow, even in loss. Abraham fathered Ishmael and Isaac, right? The eldest son Ishmael was born out of faithlessness and a human attempt to hasten God's covenant and promises. However, it would be the younger son, Isaac, not Ishmael, who would fulfill the promise. Nonetheless, God's grace was poured out, remember, on Hagar and Ishmael. And God made both Isaac and Ishmael into a great nation. Profound, right? The grace of God covering even uh, the mistakes, the sins, and the missteps of his people. Well, sibling rivalry continued with Leah and Rachel, the sisters, um, because of Laban's treachery and deceiving Jacob on his wedding night. You remember that story. Well, Laban's response was that it was not customary in his country to give the younger before he gives the firstborn, right? That was his excuse. Well, ultimately, God's grace extended to both women. Leah gave birth to Judah, through whom the lineage of David and Jesus would be fulfilled. And Rachel gave birth to Joseph. And we're going to hear about Joseph in about another 10 chapters. It's an incredible, incredible story. And then that birth led to an incredible uh, series, long extended rivalry between Joseph and all of his older brothers, right? And how they conspired to first kill him and then back off on that plan and sell him into captivity. And yet Joseph was the object of God's grace, right? And he became a foreshadowing of Christ as a means of salvation for Jacob and his brothers. God later, uh, Joseph later testified that what the brothers intended for evil against him, remember that? God meant for what? Good. God meant for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Well, then we circle back to today, and we're back to Esau and Jacob. We know about that rivalry. We know about all of the dysfunction that, that created all the turmoil, the loss of 20 years of his life in his homeland with his parents because of what he had done, right, at his mother's urging. So... In this chapter, he's being called home. Actually began a chapter ago in chapter 31. Um, with God's help, he began to repair a lifetime of conflict that he had had with the people in his life. So in chapter 31, with God's help, he brokered peace with Laban. Even after running initially, God saw to it that they could have a peace accord. Um, in chapter 32, he made his peace with God through that epic wrestling match, right? And he held on to God until God would release his blessing to him. That's all he wanted. He wanted to be blessed. He wanted to be accepted by God. And in chapter 33, today's text, Jacob continues to make things right. He's seeking to make his relationship with Esau right before he heads and crosses the Jordan back into his homeland, acting on the only narrative he's ever known for the past 20 years, that his brother is still intent on killing him. Amazing, right? So for years, 
this false narrative, we know it's false because we've read the end of the chapter, but Jacob doesn't know it's false. He's been holding on to a false narrative that for 20 years Esau has not forgiven him. And the second he steps back in, he's going to fulfill his promise to kill him. And this basically consumes Jacob with unimaginable fear. I think to his credit, um, I love that Jacob takes the initiative to resolve the sibling feud. I think he's bolstered by his, his encounter with God the night before. But even before then, he sent messengers out to, to reach out to Esau. He knew he needed to make things right. And, you know, I guess he could have crossed over. He could have gone back into his homeland and taken his chances that maybe he wouldn't run into Esau, right? But he knows he's got to fix this thing. He hasn't been commanded by God to do it, but it's in his heart to make things right, to confront his fears and to meet Esau head on rather than to hide and tuck tail and run. And so at this moment, I think Jacob exemplifies the counsel of Romans 12, 8, right, which says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The fact that Esau was coming with 400 men didn't help, didn't make things any easier. It just played into his false narrative, right? And he became all the more concerned and fearful. So he got back to work doing what Jacob does. He plans, and he hatched out this plan back in chapter 32. He now executes the plan. He hastily stages the processional of servants and wives and children, along with more than 550 livestock as a present for Esau and perhaps um, a belated effort at restitution. And then bravely, Jacob goes in front of all of them. He takes the lead. I mean, I actually think that's pretty brave. He doesn't hide behind the procession of his wives and children. He goes out and he advances to the front. And as he's advancing toward Esau, he's bowing seven times to the ground. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, ironically, Jacob's bowing was the reverse of the blessing that he had stolen for himself, which stipulated to Jacob, be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Jacob's reversal here expressed his sorrow over this shameful theft of Isaac's blessing. Well, guys, just like that, in the flash of an eye, Jacob's worst fears melt away. They dissolve into a sea of God's grace. Esau, never one for pomp and circumstance, right? He's getting frustrated with all this show and what's going on here, what's happening. He gets overwhelmed with emotion. He interrupts the parade and he runs and embraces and he kisses his estranged brother. And the text tells us they weep together. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's amazing, amazing grace. All we're told uh, about Esau is that he's satisfied with what he has, and he's had enough. And and the context here is that he's not worried about what was stolen. Um, God has blessed him. He may not be acknowledging it as God's blessing, but God has looked out for Esau just as he's looked out for, for Jacob. And all this time, all of that anger that, Je- uh, that Esau once possessed toward Jacob, it was diffused. We know from Proverbs 21, uh, 1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, right? And so God was able to change Esau's heart. He was able to subdue his wrath. Don't know if he did it in the first year, he did it in the second year, but sometime over that period of time, he did it. And he did it without Jacob's crafty plans and without Jacob's enticements. It was God at work. All that time, even though Jacob could not let go of the thought and the fact, in his mind anyway, that that Esau still hated him. Well, in response to Esau's embrace and God's unexpected grace, Jacob exclaims, he says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. And, And I can only imagine what that phrase must have meant to Jacob. I mean, all he wanted was peace. He he's tired of conflict. 
And this estrangement with his brother, which was his fault, right, has lasted long enough. And to hear his brother proclaim that was everything to, to, to Jacob. Esau had accepted him. The night before when Jacob met God and saw him face to face, he actually knew what the face of God looked like. So he could make this proclamation um, with actually uh, better than any of us could. It was like the face of God. And today all he wants is for Esau to accept him and to settle his debt. So according, again, to Kent Hughes, um, long quote here, Jacob had not been ready to see Esau's face until he had seen God's face. The divine encounter prepared the way for the human encounter. Jacob's reproachment with God preceded and made possible his reproachment with Esau. God's crippling of Jacob, Jacob's humbling, preceded his reconciliation with Esau. God's blessing upon Jacob preceded Esau's forgiveness of Jacob. And the principle here of God first, man second, it's written large in the language of love in Scripture. So God has done all of this. And he's been doing it behind the scenes for years, working on the hearts of both of these men. So Jacob's surprise reunion with Esau, I I think it should encourage us all um, to never give up hope, to trust in God that he can and does work and move in the hearts of others in ways that we cannot imagine, from the most hardened sinner to the most wayward family member. In the same way, saints, that he has worked to change and sanctify our own rebel hearts, right? Let's give God credit. If he can do it with us, he can do it with anybody. And he does. But he does it in his time. I think we should also be encouraged by this text to be patient. Because in Jacob and Esau's case, the work of reconciliation, heart change, transformation, it took 20 years to complete. It wasn't something that was really fast. And God won't stop here. His sanctifying grace in the hearts of his children will go on and on and on until Jacob takes his final breath till we take our final breath on this side of the veil. God's amazing grace. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians. He says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. He will do it. God is faithful. Well, this leads us into the second part of the, of the message today, and that's the parting, right? And this parting has to happen, but it's still, in my mind, always still, you know, I like happy endings. Um, and this chapter doesn't necessarily end on an upbeat. Um, and it begins here with the parting, but it needs to occur. So as genuinely loving and gracious as this reunion and reconciliation is between Jacob and Esau, it was not meant to last. Nearly as quickly as they embrace and weep upon each other's necks, um, they're talking about... You know, let's leave, let's go, let's part company. Well, Jacob, at least, is thinking that. The reality is is that Jacob and Esau have competing destinies. Jacob is the inheritor of the covenantal promises of Abraham, and Esau is essential and a worldly man intent on living life on his own terms. All right? So for this part, I'm going to take a little bit of a digression that I hope you guys will appreciate, but I think it's really important to look broadly um, through other books and through other aspects of, of how the things that were prophesied about Esau and Jacob actually came to fulfillment because this is part of the history of Israel, and it's kind of important to remember this. So um, it's a tale of two nations, really. It's the tale of Israel, okay? Here shown as two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the left, but it was the United Kingdom of Israel, and below to it in the yellow, the kingdom of Edom, right? So as Jacob's new name was Israel, 
signifying God's plan for him to be the father of the Israelites and the future nation of Israel, Esau, too, would be given a new name. He would be called Edom and become the father of the Edomites and the future nation of Edom. And so while conflict with with Jacob or between Jacob and Esau would end here in Genesis 33, Israel and Edom would rarely, if ever, be without conflict. Recall Isaac's blessing of Esau in Genesis 27, which led him to hate Jacob and vowed to kill him. Isaac foretold that Esau would dwell away from the fatness of the land, the dew of heaven. He would live by the sword. He would serve his brother. And when he grew restless, he would break his yoke from his neck. So during the Israelites' exodus and the wandering in the wilderness, Edom would emerge as a snare and a thorn in Israel's side for years to come. Like so many other nations at that time, the ones that Israel would conquer, but then the other ones who would survive and be around them, Edom was a center of polytheism, it was a center of pagan idolatry, and together Esau and Edom represent, I think, natural man. Without God and all who are excluded from his covenantal blessings. We learned earlier in Genesis that Esau took two Hittite women as wives despite his parents and that the writer of Hebrews uses Esau as an example of ungodliness when he warns the readers. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. So as loving and tender as Esau is in this embrace, he is by all the biblical account a natural man who lives according to natural instincts. He's not a believer. He's not walking as a sanctified, redeemed believer of God. In the genealogy of Esau in Genesis 36, it says this. It says, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all of his property that he'd acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. And he settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. During the Exodus, Moses and the people would receive a hostile greeting. Remember that from the kingdom of Edom as they're making their way back up to finally fulfill and and enter the promised land after 40 years into the wilderness or somewhere close to that, right? But the king of Edom would refuse to let them pass through their lands, coming out to them with a large army, rattling their sabers, and threatening war. Turn with me uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 2. I'll get you guys... Get your blood flowing a little bit here. I want you to read this with me. It's a long passage um, here where Moses recounts um, this incredible counter and, again, God's amazing intervention. Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes this. He says, Then we turned and we journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. And then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. Command the people. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this wilderness, through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked lacked nothing. So Moses says, we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. Incredible. 
In one of David's most notable victories after becoming king, he conquered Edom. 2 Samuel 8, 13 through 14 tells us this. It says that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons throughout all of Edom, and all of the Edomites became David's servants, causing him to exclaim this in Psalm 108. Moab is my waste basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Saints, remember, let's, let's remember how all of this is connected. Remember the prophecy given to Rachel as her twin boys struggled within her when the Lord said to her this. He said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Well, this was not just a reference to the lives of Jacob and Esau. It was a foretelling of the lives and the nations of Israel and Edom. So it had both a present reality and it had, as very often in Scripture we see, it also had a future uh, reality and future implications as well. And just as God had foretold, and all the Edomites became David's servants, Israel's servants, Jacob's servants, just as it was foretold. So graciously, God provided a future for Esau, no doubt. He gave him the possession of Seir as a blessing. And by all accounts, Esau was satisfied with what he got. He didn't really care about the covenantal promises. He didn't really care about picking up that mantle of Abraham and Isaac and becoming the third patriarch. I mean, that's obvious from the text. He just wanted a good life, right? Well, apparently he got a good life. He got wives. He got children. He got land. He got cattle. He got donkeys. He was well provided for, right? He tells Jacob in the text, he says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But in reality, what Esau had was a temporal and a perishable blessing. Jacob's blessing had eternal significance. It was imperishable, and it carried with it the hope and the promises of Messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent, grant forgiveness and eternal life to the children of Abraham, all of his future spiritual descendants who would follow, including all of us here this morning who have believed and confessed in the lordship of Jesus Christ. First Peter says this in chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. He said, To love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So again, if Esau represents natural man, born of perishable seed, then Jacob represents spiritual man, made alive in God, alive in Christ, who has inherited the imperishable seed and has put on immortality. Well, archaeological records kind of confirmed the future of Edom would not last. It flourished between the 13th and the 8th century B.C., we're told, but then it was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C., and it faded entirely in the 4th century B.C., sometime when the area was under the rule of the Greeks. Israel, on the other hand, even though it was conquered by the Babylonians, prevailed. So at the time of the sibling reunion, I imagine Jacob had no way of knowing exactly how the two brothers' destinies would historically be intertwined or unfold, but he remembered God's word spoken to him in Genesis 31. He remembered this, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. He was given clear orders from God to return to Bethel, where the exile, him being cast as a fugitive, for 20 years began in the land of Canaan. 
returning to Seir with Esau was not an option, and somehow Jacob knew this, right? But did Jacob respond appropriately? The text goes on to tell us, okay, or to show us a little picture, again, of Israel slipping back into Jacob mode. So uh, Esau set on returning to Seir, you know, as we sort of have heard in the text, he's going to take his family, go down in verse 12, and he invites Jacob to journey with him. In response, Jacob does the right thing. Um, he refuses to travel with, Je- uh, with Esau to Seir, but he does it in the wrong way. He feigns an excuse, saying that the children are frail, and the livestock must not be pushed too hard or they will die. He encourages Esau, go on ahead, go on ahead, I'll catch up, I promise, I'll meet you in Seir, right? It was clear from the text that Jacob had no intention of going to Seir, at least not right away, maybe a family vacation down the road, you know, but, so maybe it was just a half lie, maybe it was a half truth, I don't know, but it was not completely honest to say uh, the least. So why does he rely on deception and outright lie? Prayer to Minister John Flavel uh, says this. I love this quote. He says, The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Right? So in reality, Jacob is a new believer. He just made his peace with God the night before. He's a, he's a new believer. Right? His faith has very much just been birthed. And he has a lot to learn about walking with God. In the pressure of the moment, Jacob defaults to his natural instincts. Perhaps it was an attempt to avoid offending Esau. We don't know. But as Mark Twain and our dear brother Dan Cabino were fond of saying, it's never wrong to do the right thing. Ultimately, Jacob makes the right move in turning down Esau's offer to return with him to Seir, but he stumbles in faith by relying once again on craftiness and deception. Well, Kent Hughes again, heavy reliance on him. He was the big voice and a person that I, I love and have learned a lot from in my study of Genesis. He says Esau sensed Jacob's intent, and it may have been fine with him. Oops, let me go ahead and see, do that so you guys can see it. There we go. Esau sensed Jacob's intent, and it, was, it may have been fine with him. Nevertheless, Jacob's facile lie contradicted his stunning experience and affirmations the previous day. He was both Jacob and Israel. Israel would have spoken the truth in love. Jacob rationalized that. Well, One day he might go to Seir. Well, in the end, his ploy worked, and in verse 16 tells us that Esau returned that day to Seir. And Jacob would take his encampment, his wives, his children, his livestock, his family, his servants, and they would go a different way. Well, that leads us to the third point, and this one I promise will be short, because the text doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what happens next. We have to sort of fill in the blanks, but um, the title of this section, Disobedient Detour, gives you a little bit of an idea that this probably wasn't Jacob's shining moment um, after all that we've just encountered with him. Well, by now you guys know I like maps. Geography plays an important part in understanding the end of of chapter 33. So on this map, if you guys can see it, the the red line begins way down here. I think I'm going to wander over here. Way down here in Beersheba, right? And uh, Jacob is cast out. He's in exile. He's a fugitive. And he makes his way all the way up to Haran, Laban's territory, right? I don't know if you realize, 500-mile journey on foot. Must have taken him some time to complete that, that journey and to do it alone, right? Must have been a lot of opportunity for fear. Well, to allay those fears, God did a really merciful thing. At the end of his first day's journey, remember, he arrives uh, in this town called Lux, right? He sleeps outdoors on a stone pillow uh, in a place that he would na- later name Bethel. 
And there he would encounter God in a dream. He would see an angel-clad ladder descending from heaven to earth and receiving God's promise. God would tell him in the dream, he said, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. If I was embarking on a 500-mile journey by myself with no army, (laughs) you know, what a great word to receive by God. I will be with you, and I will bring you back, okay? Um, Jacob had that assurance from God. Bethel was a special place, and Bethel was the place that God had called Jacob to return. This was a round trip. It was supposed to be a round trip, incursion, where he would meet God again at Bethel. So he goes from Haran to Peniel. Peniel. Uh, The distance from Peniel to Mount Seir, if you were to basically travel all the way down south on the right-hand side, that's the route that Esau took, and that's like another 200 miles out of the way. Right? So not only was it not God's will for Jacob to accompany Esau to Seir, it was also in the wrong direction, and it would eat up time, and it would delay him doing what he was supposed to do. To complete his journey, all Jacob had to do was to travel southeast, less than 50 miles, to reach the Jordan River. This is the green line, if you guys can see it. Cross the river into the Promised Land, press on a little bit more, maybe 15, 20 more miles, get to Bethel. He wasn't that far away. Okay, but he does an odd thing. Surprisingly, he breaks camp. He takes his entire company back across the Jabbok River. He goes backwards, right? Kind of where he went the night before when he took his family across the river to safeguard he, uh, them and to protect them. And Kent Hughes again writes this. He says, he says this, It's hard to reckon Jacob's sojourn with God's clear call to Bethel. And it suggests that he was still a man who did things his own way. Well, Jacob and company eventually make their way to Shechem via Succoth, where Jacob builds an altar naming it El Elohi Israel, which means the mighty God is the God of Israel. And it seems at that moment that, that the magnanimous Israel has, has taken again the mantle of God's anointing on him and is doing the right thing. But again, one final quote, long one, guys. Sorry, you're probably not going to be able to read this, so just listen to the words. But this is Kent Hughes quoting Professor Ian DeGuid, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but he says this. He says, what was Jacob doing settling down in Shechem and raising an altar when he should have been continuing on to Bethel to raise the altar there where he had first had the dream? Did Jacob think that Shechem was a better site for trade and for his flocks? Perhaps he thought it didn't matter. After all, Bethel was now a mere 20 miles or so away. He could go there whenever he wanted to, whenever it suited him, once he got settled. Why be so precise in these things? Shechem or Bethel, does it really matter? It's really all the same, isn't it? Indeed, it is not. Whatever his motivation, Jacob's compromise and his failure to follow through with complete obedience to what he had vowed, it would cost his family dearly, as we'll see next week when Mark preaches on chapter 34, a very, very difficult chapter um, and a very, very difficult set of circumstances um, that take place with Jacob's family because of his disobedience. He goes on to write, he says, almost disobedience is never enough. Being in the right ballpark may be sufficient when watching a baseball game, but it's not nearly enough when it comes to obeying God. Nothing short of full obedience is required. Well, that ends the the chapter on sort of a down note. Like I said, it's, it's not what we would like to see of Jacob, you know. But I love the story of Jacob. I think I told you guys a couple weeks ago, he is my favorite, not just my favorite patriarch, he's one of my favorite uh, Uh, persons in the Bible, mainly because I identify so well with his foibles, okay, with his sin, with his struggle. He is not a perfect saint, right? He's not. 
He's just a raw man who encounters God. God chooses him, and it's God who makes him eventually into the man who wears the mantle of Israel and is a part of God's uh, covenantal promises and so forth. And again, I think we can all have real hope in that. So, three points to leave you guys with. One, beware of false narratives. You may think something is true, and just because you think it's true doesn't make it so. For 20 years, Jacob held on to the idea that Esau would never forgive him and would eventually follow through on his threat to kill him. He held on so tightly to that narrative, playing it over and over and over again in his head, I'm sure, that it became the only reality he could imagine, driving him to fear. It made it difficult for Jacob to fully trust in the Lord to fully believe that he would take care of the situation with with Jacob as he had done with Laban, as he had done with God himself when he met Jacob on that night. Instead, wouldn't it have been nice if, if Jacob had said along with the writer of Psalm 118, my refuge and my fortress and my God in whom I trust, and the author of Proverbs 3 who wrote this, he said, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And I was impressed this morning by one of the songs that Caleb uh, sang uh, about my sin being nailed to the cross. And I, I, just, I, I wanted to insert this in this morning. But this was the line that struck me this morning. And it fits so nicely, perfectly with where Jacob's at at this point. The verse says this. It says, when I stand accused of my regrets, by my regrets, and the devil roars his empty threats, I will preach the gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned, for Jesus is my defense, right? My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is healed by the scars. The weight of guilt I bear no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Jacob needed to hear that message, right? For 20 years, he had carried the guilt of what he had done to his brother Jacob. I don't think he, or brother Esau, I don't think he fully forgave himself. And he lived under the fear of what he had done. And I think it controlled his life. I think it did all sorts of things to delay the blessings of God that would follow. But his sin was nailed to the cross. God was with Jacob, despite all that he had done to sort of mess up things as he went along. Well, point number two, I think, is character matters. Character always matters, saints. It mattered then and it matters now. But achieving a right outcome should never come at the expense of our honor our integrity, our reputation. Jacob defaulted to his old playbook and he chose to lie to Esau instead of being honest and trusting the Lord. Uh, perhaps it was fear or expediency that drove Esau uh, to once again, or uh, that drove Jacob to once again take matters into his own hands or think, what's a little white lie between brothers, right? But he could have just told his brother, listen, brother, I love you. This reunion is great. But listen, we're due back at home, I need to see Father. You know, I want to, to go back to where I started this journey. I'll come visit you. Why don't you come with me? I mean, there's all sorts of things that Jacob could have said, right? But he feigns excuse. He lies to his brother right to his face to get out of having to yield to his desire to travel together, which would have taken them way down into Edom, which was not where Jacob was meant to be. So he does the right thing. He's not meant to go there, but he sure could have done it in a way that was more God-honoring. Well, the last point is this. Obedience also matters. Beware of partial obedience or the heart's tendency to rationalize wandering away from God's will. Jacob's decision to sojourn to Shechem, to Shechem instead of Bethel 
turned into a disaster for him and his family, as we'll hear next week from Mark. While we can't know for sure, had Jacob gone directly to Bethel, as he was supposed to, as God had instructed, it stands to reason, at least in my mind, that the tragic events of chapter 34 might have been avoided, written out of the text. I think it's a reasonable thing to assume it would have been. Well, in regard to character obedience, remember this. Sanctification takes time. So let's not judge Jacob too harshly, right? By, by modern standards of the cross, he's a new Christian. He's a new believer, right? He's just now learning how to figure things out. And life is messy. Sanctification is messy. The heart work that God has to do with us, it's messy. It's not always a pure, linear path, right? For every two steps forward, at least in my life, there's often a step backwards. It's just the way things are under the sun in this life, right? And we beat ourselves up for it, sometimes more than we should. But this life, it's more like a marathon, guys. It's not a sprint, right? 20 years, Jacob was where he was. And he's going to have a lot more time to figure things out and to get things right with God. Life is not a sprint. It's, it's more akin to a marathon. Um, it's not a slow cooker. Um, I mean, it's more like a slow cooker. It's not a microwave. You know, we all want instant results. We want instant change. There's all sorts of programs and all sorts of things, some of which might be helpful, right? But if you're wanting, um, you know, instant results, you know, there's nothing like real potatoes compared to instant potatoes. There's a difference in the work, and it's going to take time for God to do his work. Sometimes it takes, in this particular case, really for all of us, it takes an entire lifetime and there's going to be a lot of mistakes along the way. So just to close out, Jacob's story gives me a lot of hope. Jacob's life has always given me a lot of hope. God is with us in the same way that he was in Jacob, with Jacob, and he will complete what he started with us at the very beginning of our faith walk. And there'll be an abundance of grace along the way when we do mess up. We need to come back to, to God, and we need to confess when we blow it um, and when we lose our way and when we get off track and we get off course and I think Jacob is a perfect example of that and I take great confidence uh, at least for my life because I'm a guy who messes up a lot and I get off track a lot more than I'd like to so uh, so saints I hope this blesses you this morning give yourself grace God gave Jacob an incredible amount of grace I mean more than I can even imagine and that same grace is available to us uh, even better because it's available to us in Jesus Christ and through his Holy Spirit. God is patient with us. He calls us to change. He's sanctifying us. He's doing a deep and abiding work in us every day. If we are faithful and we walk out this life that he's called us to, then we're a little bit closer to the life of Christ. We're a little bit closer to where God wants us to be. And we can beat ourselves up as much as we want to when we make mistakes, but you see the tragic thing about doing that, right? when you hold on to your mistakes, when you hold on to your failures, after confessing to God, he casts our sin as far away as the east is from the west. It doesn't get any better than that. Accept God's forgiveness. Don't keep beating yourself up. Don't live for 20 years under uh, condemnation of the enemy when God has set you free. And I think we need to preach that message to ourselves over and over and over again as we strive in our sanctification to be more like Christ. Let's pray together. 
Father, I'm overwhelmed by the love that you had for Jacob. Uh, There's times in the text where he just seems like such an unlovable guy. And then I think of myself, Lord, in the times in my life where I too, Father, confess, why do you love me, Lord? Why do you love me? Um, And yet you do. Lord, you do. And um, why do you why do you love sinners? Why do you take your only son and send him down Calvary, Lord God, to be hung on a cross for us? You sacrificed him for us. So great was your love for us, knowing that, Lord, we are jars of clay, knowing that we mess up more times than we get it right. And so, Lord, this morning, I am overwhelmed by your grace. This is the story of grace. Uh, Jacob's going to get things right. He's going to get things wrong. And Lord, that's pretty much real life for us. Um, we're not going to get it right 100%. Lord, um, just like baseball and batting averages, Lord, if we bat 300 or 400, we get in the Hall of Fame. Father, if we can, can do it right, you know, 30, 40% of the time, you know, that may be the best that we can do, but we're under your grace. And we're under the forgiveness and the blood of Christ, which makes up that distance, Lord God, between our sin, our unrighteousness, and the righteousness of Christ in which we dwell and stand. So, Lord, this morning, I pray for all of us that, Lord, we would embrace uh, the truth of this passage, which when you commit your heart to your children, Lord, you are faithful. Even when we are unfaithful, you never leave us, you never forsake us. But, Lord, you will carry us through to the end of our days. You will journey with us. And if we allow your grace to sanctify us along the way, Father, we won't be perfect by the time we leave this earth, but Lord, by your grace, we will be more Christ-like. We will be able, Lord God, to honor you more fully and love you more fully. Lord, let that be the testimony of our life. May you be with us. May you be with this body, this congregation. I thank you for this word today. We love you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.